How many of you know what an oxymoron is? Raise your hands if you do. I'm just a regular moron, but an oxymoron, for those who may not have taken the SAT or ACT class that taught this, is a bringing together of two words in such a way that they seem to uh, contradict each other. It's a statement that contains, it seems, an internal contradiction, but becomes nonetheless a regular part of our language. For example, act naturally. Which is it? Do I act or am I natural? Or found missing. Or deafening silence. Or larger half. Or seriously funny. When we first listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and hear the Beatitudes being pronounced, it can almost seem like we've run into an oxymoronic teaching, as it were. What in heaven's name is the word blessed doing alongside of words like poverty and mourning and hunger and persecution? There is no accident in this, actually, because Jesus, ever the master teacher, is intentionally juxtaposing ideas that seem to have an internal dissonance to them. He is trying to get our attention. He's trying to shake us up and wake us up to that very alternative, counterintuitive way of being, doing, and thinking that will characterize people who are living not according to the mores of secular life of the world, as it were, but rather living according to the principles, practices, and perspectives of what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. People living under the kingship of God will have a different attitude about life than those who are not. As we learned last week, part of our struggle to understand Jesus in this teaching comes from the fact that the word blessing has so often been trivialized or at least misunderstood in our society. When Jesus uses the word blessed here, he's uh, selecting the word makarios in the Greek language of that day. It was a word that literally meant favored. Favored are the poor in spirit. The Beatitudes are a list, in a sense, of, of, of the kind of people whom God favors, in other words, has a particularly warm heart towards and a readiness to extend help to. And the problem is that we, like the original listeners to Jesus' teaching, have this tendency to equate favor with some kind of smiley face, gold-wrapped, Instagram-worthable version of health, wealth, and uh, prosperity. How many of us, I think, think of blessings in those kinds of terms. Dallas Willard writes, we have fractured and misled and corrupted the meaning of blessed to suggest that when life is good, it means that God is favoring us. And when life is hard, it must be that we're doing something wrong and God is punishing us. If you take nothing from this series, then I'm hoping you're gonna walk away with this idea, at least from today. It's when we're in the midst of the mess, not in the midst of the marvelous, that God favors us. It's when we're actually in the midst of the mess 
that God's favor moves towards us. It's in those times when we come to the very end of ourselves and our plans and our ability to control and to command things. It's in those moments when we know that we just can't possibly succeed or maybe even stand up if a grace from beyond ourselves does not do something, does not act in us or for us. It's in those circumstances where our hands that have been trying to control and run things finally unclench and turn upwards towards heaven in supplication. It's in those times and places that the favor of God, his power, his presence, his provision inclines itself towards us in an even deeper way. And this is why it is not just the poor in spirit who are blessed, but those who mourn, who attract God's favor. Now, mourning is not something we generally like. I'm not talking about the a.m. We don't always like the a.m. either. Getting up in the morning can be uh, difficult uh, at times. But I mean morning in the sense of M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G is something with which we also have some resistance. And that's strange if you think about it because actually experiences of loss are a major part of what it means to be alive. Uh, maybe we were children and uh, we had a precious toy or a blanket or some other object of security and we lost it. And it was just a devastating experience. Or, or, or our precious pet died or we stood at the casket of our grandparent just struggling to take in the, the hugeness of what has just happened to us. Or a little long, further along in life, we're teenagers and we have this crush on that special guy or that special girl and that person doesn't even know we're alive. Or worse, actually rejects us and our hearts are broken. And we sob in our room over it. Or we didn't get into the school play or we weren't selected for the team or we weren't admitted to that particular college. Some of us know what it's like to, to, to lose our job or maybe even our home and whatever sense of identity or financial stability and security that we associated with that that circle is lost. Others of us have lost children or spouses. And some of us have lost the hope of having children or spouses. Many of us have shed tears as we watch the kids fly the nest, and some of us have shed tears when they came back again. (laughs) Loss is a big part of life. And with the passing of the years, loss becomes an even larger and more consistent and more pervasive and more dominating experience in life. We realize with the writer of Ecclesiastes that to everything there is a season and that good season we used to enjoy is going now or has gone now. And the seasons as they come and go means all kinds of change and the change gets faster and faster and more pervasive and we find ourselves uh, saying goodbye to the technology that we used to know and goodbye to the TV programs that we used to know and the traditions that framed a life that we understood and that we cherished are always going away. We lose our professional position, we lose our physical looks, we lose our stamina, we lose our best friends, we lose often even our memories. Aren't you glad you came to the happy church today? (laughs) But this is the reality, isn't it? 
Strangely, you'd think with all of this experience that we would become accustomed to mourning. We would become pros at mourning. And yet, strangely, in today's world, that's often not the case. Past a certain point, people today actually aren't always quick to honor those who mourn. They are good with it at the beginning. A little bit of sniffling, a shedding of a tear or two is certainly okay. But before long, we get the message subtly that we should be moving on. We should be moving on. We should be getting over it, whatever the it was. So there is this natural tendency when we sense this external response to, to, to deny the feelings that we're having after a while, to try and suppress them. If we feel that we must continue to grieve, we'll go do that privately. We won't let others see. We're encouraged by people all the time to replace what we've lost with something and our society is always offering us a parade of of products and people and substances and activities that we can stuff into the hole that loss has left. And again and again we are told that if we just wait a while it's going to be okay. The time will heal it. That everything will be fine. We'll feel better. Just wait. Just wait. But we don't always feel better adopting this strategy. You may be interested to know that that this particular approach to mourning is not the approach that the scriptures commend. Uh, In fact, if we study the teachings of Jesus or the Bible as a whole, we discover that Mourning is regarded as the appropriate response to loss. It's not something to be hidden from, to be pushed away. It is the appropriate response to genuine loss. In fact, in the opening chapter of the Bible, we read, and I quote, God saw all that he had made, and it was what? Very good. So even though sin has tainted and disfigured the creation in deep ways that do require redemption, there is still a persevering goodness to the world that God has made, and to lose any part of it, as we do at various times in so many different ways, ought to inspire grief from us. It should. It should. In fact, mourning is a measure of meaning. The size of our sadness is the size of the sweetness that we had and are required to let go of. In fact, sadness and tears, if you think about it, are one of the most sincere ways that we express to God that we actually got how good the gift was. Mourning is a strange form of praise, of worship, if you think about it. It's it's one of the reasons why God favors those who mourn and who don't just move on. For this reason, the second strategy that it gets commanded in Scripture for dealing with our grief is to try to embrace the pain rather than deny it. Uh, as we saw when we studied the story of Lazarus, even though Jesus knew that his friend's story was going to end okay, in fact, more than okay, we're told that Jesus did what? He wept. He wept over Lazarus' death, the pain that this caused him, his loved ones, sisters, the neighborhood, 
As some of you know from experience, tears are among the most cleansing and healing things that we can do in the face of pain. Jesus thought it was appropriate to cry in the face of loss. Is there a grief? Is there a loss in your life that you need to be given permission to weep over, to let yourself feel, embrace rather than denying? Thirdly, from a biblical point of view, it is better to review your loss than to rush to replace it. Pastors get to spend a lot of time with grieving people. Uh, We will often meet them and sit and talk with them in these circumstances. And I I think most times when I gather with a family who's just lost a loved one, certainly one of the occasions for mourning, um, there is a certain tension in the room as we gather because people have a sense of all the things that must be done. We must plan the service out. We must make the reception arrangements. We must sort out all of the things that have to do with unwinding a death in the life of a family. Um, and so I'll feel that in the room, and, I, and I'll gather folks together. We'll be in their living room or in my study, and, and, and um, I will start by asking them to talk. I will, I will say, tell me about your mom. And, and there's a little tension because people feel like, oh, we got details to nail down. I say, no, 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 Before, we'll get to that. But tell me about what you loved about her. What are the adjectives that, that describe her? Tell me her life story. Describe for me what it was like to grow up with her, what she gave to you, how she shaped you, where she drove you crazy, how that's actually turned out to help you in life in some way. I mean, review this for me. Review what you've lost. And almost invariably, it will start uh, with a trickle. Somebody will say something, and then another person will observe, and then the trickle will turn to a steady flow of memories and observations and, and descriptions of this life, and then it will become a cascade, a torrent, and it goes on and on. And We're there in like two hours have gone by like this, and there have been tears, and there's been so much laughter. And people will say, thank you. That was wonderful. I just feel so much more comfort now. And I know we're going to make it through. How many times in the scriptures are we told to remember? Remember the journey you've been on. Remember what the Lord has done. Review, review, review the meaning of your life. What do you need to review of what you've lost in order to to take hold of the meaning of it in a way that matters? It's also been my experience, and more importantly, the counsel of the scriptures, that there is also a blessing for those who choose to mourn in community rather than alone. One of the books I read this past year that has just rocked my world, it's made such a difference for me, in fact, I recommend it to all of you, is, is the newest book by the amazing Christian sociologist Brene Brown. And her book is called Braving the Wilderness, and it's a titanic work surveying our society and a lot of what's going wrong and how it can get better. 
But, but in one section of the book, she, she really talks about the power of mourning. And I want to just share this. Uh, she describes a strange gathering that she participated in on December the 15th in 2012, which you might remember is the day after 20, 20 six- and seven-year-olds and six of their adults caregivers succumbed to a reign of terror at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. You remember that story? This is how Brene describes it. Our kids, our kids, were first graders. Their kids were first graders. The pain, horror, and fear were unfathomable. We gathered for no other reason than to be with one another. We didn't come together to make sense of what had happened in that school so far away from our home because we never, ever, ever wanted it to make sense. We sat crying in silence. Our small group of neighborhood mothers, some friends, some strangers, who had just felt compelled to come together after the news. I remember thinking, maybe if all the mothers in the world crawled on their hands and knees toward those parents in Newtown, somehow we could take some of the pain away. We could spread their pain across all of our hearts. I would do it. I would take my share, she writes. Even if it adds sadness to all my days, I would take my share. My friends and I didn't rush to start a fund that day. We didn't storm the office of the principal at our kids' school asking for increased security measures. We didn't call politicians. We didn't post on Facebook. We would do all of that in the days to come. But the day right after the shooting, we just sat together with nothing but the sound of occasional weeping, cutting through the silence, leaning into our shared fear and our shared pain somehow comforted us. Being alone in the midst of a widely reported trauma, watching endless hours of 24-hour news or reading countless articles on the internet is the quickest way for anxiety and fear to tiptoe into your heart and plant their roots of secondary trauma. So that day after the mass killing, we weren't alone. I chose to cry with my friends. Then I headed to church to cry with strangers. I remember 9-11. I remember how many cars just pulled in off the road that morning into our parking lot and walked in and sat in the seats where you're sitting, strangers, to cry and to pray and to feel the immensity of what we had lost, what others had lost. The Apostle Paul says that one of the most important ministries of God's people is to mourn with those who mourn. That's part of our job description. It's not that this is the only thing we do, of course. We are also called to take action, to cut away at the roots of injustice, at the roots of cruelty and of heart 
ache. We're called to do things, to make policies, to take actions. But the first thing that Christians are called to do in the face of tragedy or travesty is to bear one another's burdens. It is to, as Brene Brown said, to get underneath the pain and the pressure of another's life to try and take on some of the weight of others' grief and so fulfill the law of Christ, the pattern of Christ. Many years ago, I was attending church in New York City at the famous Riverside Church in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I remember that day vividly because there had been another one of those major news stories. It had been the story of a, um, a young gay man who had been brutally lynched by a group of strangers. And it had been everywhere across the country. And that particular day, the pastor, a man by the name of William Sloan Coffin, an amazing uh, now deceased pastor, he had been a CIA agent, he had been the chaplain of Yale, he had had this amazing life. And, And he had chosen to go to the other state where this terrible thing had happened and attend the funeral of that boy. And what he said that day was, He came back and he said, you know, as far as I could tell, I might have been the only self-avowed professing Christian at the funeral. I was definitely the only clergy person at that funeral. And that breaks my heart, he says, because you didn't have to agree with everything about this young man's life to be there. You just had to be against murder and hatred. You just had to feel something of what it might have been like for that boy's mom and dad when this was done to their precious child. And it convicted me. It convicted me. We've got a lot of tragedies and travesties of justice going on in our time. Where, I wonder, are Christians meant to show up more? Um, You and I, we don't always know how to solve the problems, uh, the losses that our neighbors are suffering. You know, if you're like me, you probably feel clueless and powerless to know how best or where to start to permanently solve the the ravages of racism and the violence going on in our cities and the Me Too stories emerging in our times. But you know what? I bet we know how to grieve. We're practiced at it. I bet we know how to do something to stand with people in the midst of the pain. And let me be bold to say that this attitude, this orientation toward standing compassionately with other people regardless of their party, their race, their religion, their gender, their sexuality, their age, their ethnicity, whatever. This is among the most important acts of witness needed from Christians in our time. We should adopt this attitude not because it is easy,